Kyle McLaughlin. That is his fucking name. Why should yeah. I know his name? That guy's from Yakima. <laughs> that guy's from Yakima. Oh yeah. Hey, it's time for Film Church, where we explore filmmaking concepts, celebrate cinematic artistry, and we're going to bend your ear tonight with my guest and I examine a movie. Today's podcast, I'm going to be reporting on the forthcoming Film Fest, South by Southwest's online Film Fest. In Movie Magic Minutes, I'll reach out into the catacombs and bring to light a story about the chariots of the gods. And film school fact, diegetic elements or diegesis? Kind of sounds funny. Funny words. So yeah, tonight I have a good friend of mine. He's back on the podcast. Good old Jason Dingus is with me tonight. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing fairly well, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So instead of just getting right into the movie, I want to share with you my uh, forthcoming film fest, South by Southwest. So it, it's coming up real quick. South by Southwest Online 2021 will take place March uh, 16th through the 20th. Uh, The complete film program includes 75 features this year. I'm about to declare this festival awesome. And there you go. (laughs) It um, is going to be 75 features plus 84 short films this year. And it's not just a film festival. If you've ever attended before, you know that is also music. Um, and they're also doing stand-up comedy now, which I, I didn't realize, but that's a new thing. So it's completely online. You can invest in a, online attendance for $249 for a complete festival pass. Uh, not exactly cheap, but you get all access, um, including uh, access to uh, 230 sessions or panels uh, discussing various creative business and tech-related content. And uh, if you are a student uh, at college or high school, you can apply for a discounted pass of 59 bucks. So if you're studying, uh, check it out because there's a lot of great content at that festival. It's huge. And it's very unique this year in that it's all online. So get all the details at uh, it's sxsw.com but uh, colloquially known as South by Southwest. You ever you ever go down to Austin for that one? No, sir. I have, however, been to Austin, played some shows in Austin, but never South by never for South by Southwest. I wonder for that that massive ticket price, and since it's online and all those panels and everything you get access to, uh, that's not all live, right? Like you can tap into that anytime you want. Well, I know, like when the festival is really going in person, it's you have to be there, yeah. Be square. So I've kind of figured that they're doing it that way again. It'd be nice if you could just, if you miss it, you can still access it if you paid for it. You get the, you yeah. Get, you really get, you get more, possibly. I mean, for 
for 249 bucks, yeah, I would hope not? it would be like that. People are hurting, be man. Excellent. Give them everything. <laughs> Seriously. You can, yeah. Yeah, you can. Uh, but yeah, if you, any band you want to see, you can see their whole live set at any time. You got it's like a, a Amazon rental. It expires in like 72 hours or something. Right. <laughs> Once you start it, mm-hmm. you have 72 hours. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh my my next part here is called you ever wonder where the idea that aliens helped the egyptians build the pyramids came from back in 1970 a documentary came out that was based on a book by eric von uh, denikin i think that's how you pronounce it eric von denikin i always say danikin i don't know though i you know i try to it's got those umlauts yeah. So I'm gonna I'm going with Denikin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, so he he uh he wrote this book called Chariots of the Gods, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past. There was a, a documentary as well. The doc sported the same name, uh, but dropped the unsolved mysteries part. The documentary purports that ancient aliens had intervened, influenced, and helped multiple ancient cultures achieve great feats like building the pyramids or moving the Moai of Easter Island. Uh, the film also claims that the Bible and other ancient texts offer interpretations that include the possibility that angels and gods were actually aliens guiding humans for some unknown purpose. So in 1970, the box office for this uh, documentary reached $25.9 million, and it was the ninth highest grossing film that year. Chariots of the Gods was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in the same year. But the award ended up going to the doc Woodstock uh, by Michael Wadley. Never seen that one. Uh, These Chariots of the Gods were viewed by critics as science fiction by Robert Ebert and the Terrible Claw reviews uh, by, let's see, Dianon. It's like a dinosaur name. This guy writes under. Dianon Nikus <laughs> says, From willful misrepresentation of evidence to outright lying, this film couldn't be more amazingly pathetic in its attempt to convince me. <laughs> the, the cap to this story, the author of the book, Eric von Daniken, Daniken, whatever it is, uh, was charged and sentenced for embezzlement, fraud, and forgery. A court psychiatrist who examined the writer had pegged him a prestige seeker, a liar, and an unstable criminal psychopath. <laughs> um, yeah, have you read that book? Yeah, he, this guy's a problem. No, but I, I've done. I, I, I did. I didn't do an episode on this guy on my podcast, but when I did an episode uh, on the Nazca lines in Peru. Uh, with my friend Grace Bigler, who's actually going to be on my show this week or next week. Sorry, um, mm-hmm. he he came up because he was problematic for the Nazca lines because he also threw out the theory that they were in, the people of Peru and Nazca were instructed by aliens, basically. Uh, and there's this poor old lady, the Lady of the Lines, who was there to protect it and preserve it. But all Von Daniken causes this like massive. Uh, tourist boom of people who were 
destroying the lines. They were driving all over them, walking all over them because you can't see them from the ground. You have to see, you have to get up in the air basically to see them. And they're still finding these things to this day. Hmm. And her name was Maria Rika, and she finally got them to basically preserve it. But she fucking hated Eric Von Daniken because he it was all lies, and he's <laughs> he's getting all these idiots to come and just destroy history. Um, and he yeah anyway his theories are uh kind of regarded as pretty racist because any any non-white culture that does something mind-blowing they had to have had help is like his theory basically and and grace pointed out and i'm gonna i'm gonna say this uh i might i don't know the facts exactly but apparently i don't know if it was this book or another book but i think he he has some history of having like nazi affiliations like one of his ghost writers is like fucking nazi or it's like it's all weird man the guy's got a sketchy he's wow. a sketchball wow he's a fucking sketchball and he right. uh, all the legit researchers <laughs> and people in the uh in the world don't really like this guy throwing that out there yeah it kind of kind of seemed like he had burned too many bridges um he worked for as a manager of a, a hotel in Davos, where that th- those charges were filed against him. Oh, probably. So, I know very little yeah. about it, but yeah, I don't. Sure. I don't doubt it. Right. Fuck Eric Von Danigan, man. <laughs> <laughs> Film school fact: diegetic elements or diegesis. The word diegesis is derived from the Greek language and means to narrate or narration. Narration can be part of the diegetic elements of a movie, but diegesis is not simply narration. Diegetic sound is referenced quite a bit in film studies, but there is more to consider when thinking about elements that make up what is diegetic. The storied world that is created and displayed in a movie applies to its diegesis and refers to the narrative being told. This includes any experiences any of the characters have or obstacles faced and historical knowledge told within the tale. Some elements may be called extra diegetic if some parts of the story happen outside of the main character's storyline. All of this is conveyed with a camera and edits or cuts. The non-diegetic elements is easiest to understand when examining sound. Diegetic music or music being played by a character in a movie on a record player is diegetic, while the soundtrack only the audience would hear is considered non-diegetic. Ways in which films have broken the diegesis with music or narration is referred to as transdiegetic. Um, So an example, in the film Stranger Than Fiction, the main character is brushing his teeth when he suddenly hears the narration only we the audience heard before. In this case, a non-diegetic character, the narrator, suddenly becomes a diegetic character participating in the world of the story. Another mode by which the outside world makes its way into a film is through non-diegetic inserts. An example of this is a shot or sequence of shots cut into a scene that has nothing to do with the narrative world. For example, 
In the film uh, Clockwork Orange, when Alex is listening to Beethoven in bed, we, the audience, see flashes of a person being hung, Alex dressed as a vampire with blood in his mouth, an explosion of dirt and rocks, more vampire Alex, a train explodes, and it continues. These inserts are not part of the story, but work to give the audience an insight into the mind of the character of Alex. And that is diegesis, diegetic elements. I say diegesis. I don't know. I've always... Uh, you know, in, in, in school, I, I remember being dia, but every everywhere I looked is dia, diegetic. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm, yeah, I'm sure. I think I blame Gene Youngblood. So, Gene, if you're yeah. listening to this. <laughs> hi, hi, Gene. Hi, hi, <laughs> <We> Gene. <laughs> hi, Gene. Yeah. We do miss you. That, I, man, I, I aced his... Uh, the hell is that media and um is that intro me- oh media and democracy class boy that was oh, yeah. a fun that was, that was a, fun a good class. one fun class yeah that was a great class loved that one alternative screen you have any examples oh, yeah, yeah alternative screen man that was a great class great class one and two yeah. even even intro i mean i, I took oh, intro yeah. with him too such such that's why, I'm, that's why i'm doing this podcast yeah love Gene Gene Youngblood. Youngblood. All right, what love were you, you, man. <laughs> what were you, what were you asking? <laughs> so, uh, examples. You have a, a an example of uh, non dia diegetic music or something else. Um, my fa- my favorite diegetic breaks are from Mel Brooks. Naturally, oh, yeah. If you listen to our first episode, this comes to as no surprise. My favorite, like the greatest one, is Spaceballs, where they're trying to find Lone Star in the group and they don't know where they are. And they're like, pull up Spaceballs, the movie. <laughs> and he's like, what? We're in the middle of making it. <laughs> he's like, there's this new thing, instant cassettes. And then they pull it up and fast forward to the point that they are in the movie. Exactly. And have like their who's on first kind of moment about, you know, like where we're in the, we're now, now they're like, when's now or when's that? He's like, it, just missed it you know shit like that whatever and then they go into the future of the movie and see them <laughs> in the desert so they can find them that's fucking genius right. to me and um <laughs> another another great diegetic break provided by mel brooks is in robin hood men in tights where i think it might be the introduction to uh maid mary and she's singing in the bathtub and there's this slow push in of the the camera to, towards the stained glass window and then it cuts in inside to her bathing and singing. And then a few seconds later, the lens of the camera breaks through the window and it interrupts her song. <laughs> and she just looks at it and brushes it off. And then it just like the camera pulls back. Cause you know, I did, you know, showing production equipment yes. is a diegetic break there, but you know, those are my, break. my two favorites. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, but well, I do have another a- one too, from Brooks in oh. blazing saddles. Mm-hmm. That was uh, in Blazing Saddles. Well, damn it. I don't remember the name of the character. One of the cowboys is riding across the desert and mm-hmm. the, the big orchestral soundtrack kicks in. And as he rides along, he comes across the orchestra in the desert yeah. playing. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. that, was a, that was one of my favorite examples. 
Um, I have a theory I want to throw at you. I'm going to spitball this. Tell me if it's got any. I've had this theory, I think, since college, but I can't remember. This might be 20 years deep that I've been thinking about this. <laughs> but lens flare is a diegetic break. Uh, and I'm fucking convinced of it. And lens flare has gotten so popular that it's like they create it with CGI in fucking space movies and shit. But mm. unless a character in that movie, much like the music, like if a character's playing a record and it's music from within the narrative of like the, the movie world, unless that lens flare is coming from a character handled by, or from a camera handled by a character within the, the movie, and we, as an audience, see the footage with the lens flare on it. I really feel that a natural lens flare created by the cameraman and camera crew is a fucking diegetic break. Because what do you need to make movies? Cameras with lenses on it. And if you have a lens flare, that is showing the audience, basically, that there is a human element to making the movie. And that is the actual sun in the real world hitting the lens in the camera that is making this movie in a supposed fake world. Hmm. You with me? Yeah, I could see that. Well, yeah, I could see that, but um, I don't know. That's, I guess because like you, ha you have to use cameras to tell the story. The fact that, I mean, like a lot of lens flares now are, are put in, after the fact yeah, they're so popular it's annoying like lens right. flare is great in photography you can get mm -hmm. as, as intentional as you want with that lens flare and as creative as you want but in in moving pictures i find it really annoying i don't care how beautiful it is i think it's kind of annoying <laughs> i mean and i've been on sets where like oh get that flare that's great that's great and i'm like oh fuck no because everyone wants <laughs> i understand it's a it's like ca capturing a beautiful it's, I mean, it's not catching like the fucking golden hour or anything. I mean, maybe you, whatever, maybe there is a nice lens flare in the golden hour and you catch this really nice moment, but not with it. I just want to throw in there that uh, every fucking camera operator or DP out there, if they ever, if they ever listen to this episode, they're going to hate me, but <laughs> fuck you. You're wrong. <laughs> 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 do something better <laughs> anyway uh so yeah I, I wanted to quickly mention to the uh ferris bueller's day off and how he he you know directly talks to the camera which is in talking to the audience and um in doing so he's he's breaking that diegetic element in the sense that he's bringing in the audience and basically treating them as if they were a character in the story. I don't, do you feel like that, that is kind of a, one of those breaks or I've been struggling with trying to figure out like how, how does that apply to the story world? It's really weird because it's not, it's, I don't know if that was the first, but it's such an influential style. Now, like look at the way television shows are made, you know, I mean like, mm -hmm fucking the office being 
the most popular, I'm sure. Like that style of addressing the camera, and it's kind of like a documentary cruise following you around all fucking day. I mean, Larry Sanders' show was kind of the OG, I think, in terms of television. But that style of addressing the camera, just addressing your making something. But it, Ferris Bueller's weird. It's not, it's not like he's addressing their making a movie. You know what I mean? Right. We're just, yeah. he's just inviting, he's just talking to the audience. So it's like a visual narrator, like in a fucking cartoon. Yeah. I had read something where somebody basically was saying like, he's, he is like this superhuman in, <laughs> in the story. Yeah. And so he is so super that he is able to speak to like as a God to these others that are out there somehow, some way. I don't know. <laughs> hey man, it's his movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's, his, it's his day off do whatever yeah. he wants yeah i mean exactly. th this whole thing could just be like a fever dream you know like what what if the movie just ended and he's just sick as shit sweating <laughs> naked in his bed none of it happened they should have ended it that way <laughs> it's all a nightmare but yeah man i don't know i really don't know if that's like a diegetic break or it's just part of the uh aesthetic it's weird yeah it's a weird weird loophole yeah for sure. Yeah, the different versions of the diegetic, extra diegetic, or meta. There's meta diegetic, which has to do usually with telling stories. The character in the movie tells a story about mm -hmm. uh, something that takes place elsewhere outside mm, of the main story. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's like literary terms that are similar, and I'm sure theatrical terms, and I don't even know. Yeah, of rules that you can follow or rules you can break. Right. Um, well, let's uh, let's start getting into Starman. Starman is made in 1984. Yes, and the the genre is sci-fi, sci of course, and also a love story. So, John Carpenter is the director of Starman. Uh, he has done a lot of, of movies, typically like exploitation films, uh, quote unquote, depending on who you're talking to and what film it is. That's kind of where he came from. Uh, so Starman, he said, was his version of It Happened One Night uh, from 1934, a film by Frank Capra, um, which uh, I have not seen. Uh, it looked pretty interesting, though. You haven't seen that either, yeah? No, yeah. sir. No. Yeah, so if, um, I'm not exactly sure how he saw that fitting in, but I do know that it that film is about a couple who had just met. They were on a bus, and they both get off the bus, I think, and they, they get left behind, and they have to kind of figure out how to get out of that situation. Hmm. And it's a comedy, so Perfect. Probably, probably funny. <laughs> I wonder if it still holds up. I would think so. It, it has. I, I looked it up. Um, I think uh, Rotten Tomatoes, ninety-eight percent. Oh damn! Oh, so Jesus. should hold up. Yeah, yeah. People love it. So usually John Carpenter has multiple jobs on his films. This one, he was only the director. I think it was by choice, but also because it was more of a studio style picture, mm -hmm. with a higher budget. From what I read or watched, he was the seventh director that they uh, had. 
I guess they had had six before him that were attached and bailed to do other shit. Uh, one of them being Tony Scott. Right. Tony Scott was like the only one I actually recognized. Well, so one of the other directors was Adrian Lin, who mm -hmm. was he directed uh, the version of Lolita in '97. Oh, okay, so, you did an episode about which, that. Yeah, Megan and I just talked about that. So I thought that was kind of a weird crossover mm -hmm. for the podcast. Yeah, man, a nice quinky dink. But right? this is just not his movie. He had just done The Thing, which was a total bomb. And he was, I mean, it's a classic, obviously, now. But at the mm -hmm. time, it was a total failure. And he was looking to save his career. And he thought Starman was safe. And a good, like, uh, could rebuild his cred with studios, I guess. Um, so he did it. And he, uh, I think he had just come off Christine. Like the thing to Christine to Starman is, I think the chronology, but I'm not exactly sure. And I don't think Christine was out yet when he was starting to do Starman, but I'm not exactly sure. But mm -hmm. I also read that he was so worried about his career at this point that he was actually on board to direct the Dudley Moore classic Santa Claus <laughs> at, at at that at one point because he was worried sure. that no one would hire him anymore after the thing bombed, which is crazy right. to think about and hindsight but yeah this right. movie was like his uh like fail safe or something it was like his i'm i'm, I'm back baby look i can i can make you money yeah when well, I, I think he fell in love with the script too ultimately i mean i'm sure he had to the movie is flawless jeff and i'm, I'm sure carpenter had a lot to do with that but it it very much i i don't see why he wouldn't want to do it in the first place i mean I haven't seen any interviews with him. I'm sure he had a great time and actually wanted to do it, maybe. Oh, yeah. But uh, it just wasn't hit. It wasn't like a typical Carpenter film, you know? No, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I feel like he was excited to kind of break out of what he was doing. And like you said, it was a, a, his safe safe movie, something yeah. that was a little bit more appealing. Mm -hmm. It was a, a love story. Love he story, saw yeah. it as a love story. Mm-hmm. And it, this the, the script actually went through a lot of rewrites, and there were mm -hmm. a lot of writers Seven, that didn't get credited. Yeah, some yeah, sounds right. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of wonder, you know, what what it could have been with other directors. But not as good, I'm telling you. I I agree, hundred percent. You know the original writers, Bruce Evans and Reynold Gideon. You know they wrote Stand by Me too. Oh really? They're the original writers that got the credit, but you know okay they didn't do any of the rewrites they sold the script i guess and walked away yeah i didn't document any of the other writers that were involved they kind of wonder how much of that was used in the end yeah at least for carpenter's version i'd, I'd love to see the original script honestly see what that's yeah. all about because i'm telling you they must have had a good script supervisor too on this movie because every little hole in the story or whatever is like covered, man. It's like a f almost flawless storytelling. It's such a good, tight story and movie. I think I've watched it twice in the last month. One once for my show and once for this show. <laughs> nice. So I've had, I was like, man, this movie is just perfect. I swear. It's a good one. I, I watched this as a kid. My mom, Picked it up at the video store. I don't remember how old I was, but it was it wasn't like the year it came out. Um, but we loved it. You know, it it was a little bit racy for my 
age with the <laughs> the sex scene, but oh yeah, it was it was tastefully done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so this movie had uh, originally a twenty million dollar budget that Carpenter said he could do it in. Uh, it ended up going over by four million. Mm. Uh, I think probably part of that was the the special effects they they under budgeted for. <laughs> they didn't really have that many. Dude, but, they hold up. They're good. Yeah, there was uh, some disappointment. I think at the time, the year after it came out, people were, you know, they they see all these big names, uh, Rick Baker attached to it, Stan Winston. Yeah. I see for the transformation scene that we'll get into Dick Smith, Stan Winston, Rick Baker. One of the funniest things I've seen in, in the credits of a movie is to this movie, just to jump all the way to the end for, yeah. for Stan Winston, for that transformation scene that we're going to get into. Like I keep saying, mm-hmm. um, it says Stan Winston, like, cause they, they all have their own little crew, their own little unit. And Stan Winston's unit is, Jack Bricker, Ellis Berman Jr., and crew. That's what it says in the fucking credits. And crew. I've never seen that in any credit of any movie where they didn't list everyone in the crew. They just put and crew. Like, what the fuck is... I mean, was it 100 people? Is it just too many people? Or they just don't give a fuck? That is so crazy to me. That's what the credits are for. I think they <laughs> to give I credit. Think that they really weren't happy. Really? Right. Stan <laughs> nobody, Winston. Nobody yeah, well, they didn't want it because they 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 were hoping that they'd do all these cool effects and they ended up having this tiny budget and they they really couldn't do what they wanted to do I love and Carpenter it. didn't want anything more than that. So Man, all right. Well, let's let's get to that point in the movie because it's in the beginning. I fucking love. That's my favorite scene. Yeah, that's a that's a good God, one. It's so good, and the special effects so, are great. I think. I mean, they're whatever. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the the history behind the movie because Carpenter he, he you know he likes to make his movies. I think in California for the most part, but with the budget that he had and some of the needs, uh, they needed to tie up uh, some highways. Uh, for the uh, the roadblock scene, and so they got permission to shoot in Nevada and actually sh- sh- totally shut down the highway. I think for multiple days, whenever they oh, man, they felt like terrible. they needed it. That yeah, terrible. People trying to travel, I'm I'm sure we're like, what the man, heck is going? That's on? one thing on a film production that I always kind of hate being a part of is just blocking roads forever, yeah. and. Uh, <laughs> No one involved with the shooting of the scene is paying attention to the real world. And it's just like, a, it's a wild ride emotionally. Anyway. Um, yeah, I bet. It's I just bet. like so ridiculous. And like, we're ruining all these people's days for, for, for this. <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I got a little story. When I was a kid uh, traveling into the Seattle area the highway was shut down. Like it's just stopping. We're like, was there an accident or something? Mm-hmm. And people were getting out of their cars and be like, you know, talking to each other. And we eventually found out they were shooting Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> nice man. That movie comes up yeah. so much. I swear I do. <laughs> uh, on my show, I talk a lot about Bigfoot or Bigfoot <laughs> always comes up and guaranteed every time Bigfoot comes up, Harry and the Hendersons comes up. 
<laughs> I'm doing it right now. I'm just like, <laughs> I mean, you brought it up, but I love yeah. that you brought it up. It's a great. <laughs> it's a. Great, I love that movie. It's great. Yeah, it's silly. It's a good, good family film. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but he was. Anyway. <laughs> they were shooting in Nevada. Yeah, locking and, down and the just highway, shutting, shutting them down. But so he couldn't do that anywhere else. The laws, I guess, in California at the time wouldn't let him. So they went to Nevada to do that, and then the uh, forest fire scene. They got permission to actually burn down a real forest in Tennessee. (laughs) And they had to jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, I guess there was actually a forest that needed to be thinned, uh, or he called denuded, which I had to look Mm -hmm. that word up. But it was uh, needing to be uh, removed anyway. And I guess they even got... So, yeah, yeah. If you're going to do it, do it right. Yep. And get permission from the Sierra Club, all that good stuff. Yeah, apparently, apparently he did. So yeah, he had to get out of Hollywood in order to to really get into getting this film done. I thought that was interesting and pretty normal these days. I mean, going outside mm-hmm. of the state. Oh yeah, um, it's a lot cheaper that cheaper to shoot that way. Yeah, you get all the the tax incentives and whatnot. Yeah, come to Portland, everybody. Come to, <laughs> come to the state of Oregon. <laughs> Uh, so I had a, a interesting quote from Carpenter from an interview too that I want to quickly share here. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his belief in in the screenplay. So he said, "The screenplay must be seen as a movie. The script is pretty much a bible for me. That's what we go by. That's the blueprint of the movie. That's the story that's told. The problem comes sometimes if you try to change something out in the boondocks." When you're shooting and what seems like a good idea at four in the morning on a cold night may not seem so great when you get back into the screening room and you look at it and say, oh, why did I let them do that? (laughs) So that's Mm -hmm. why you stick to your script. But he also said that he, yeah, yeah. He, He also did say too that, you know, he did encourage improvisation by actors all the time, but, uh, making sure that blueprint was followed. I think that's well, pretty good advice. Well, you got a advice. fucking UPM, you got a UPM breathing down your fucking neck all day, every day, you know, making sure <laughs> yeah. you're, uh, you're no, as little OT as possible. So, uh, get what you can get. Right. You hope you make your pages for the day. If you don't, you punt them for another day and you hope to just get them eventually. But, uh, I feel like, a lot of scripts aren't honored because of budgetary restrictions and time restrictions and bad workflow and bad management. But uh, it's got to be frustrating, super frustrating for anyone that wants to stay true to a script and not basically getting it done because of uh, whatever. Well, budget. Yeah. That's all that matters. The unit production manager, keeping Mm -hmm. people on task. I wanted to talk about Jeff Bridges too before we get into the movie uh, specifics. So he he was nominated for best actor for this role. Mm-hmm. Great great performance. I mm-hmm. yeah. love his performance in this movie. Absolutely. So he he said that he worked with uh, Russell Clark, a, a dancer. Mm-hmm. He actually hired him to help him come up with the to create the movements for the birth scene. Mm-hmm. And so and. He also had said that Jeff was, uh, he was practicing this scene at home, videotaping himself. I guess that was something that he did all the time. So he's in a, in a bedroom 
uh, get the videotape set up. He's naked and in the fetal position and his wife walks in while he's huddled on the floor and <laughs> she just kind of looks at him with a shocked look on her face and then realizes what he's doing and she walks out of the room and shuts the door <laughs> oh my without, without saying a word. Um, <laughs> I want to see that. I want to see that video. <laughs> that would hope, be amazing. I hope it was, I hope it was the camera was pointed at the door. Right. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he had worked out with uh, John Carpenter, this idea that the character was, you know, an alien who was trying to impersonate a human as best as he could, mm-hmm. but he wasn't, wasn't very good at that impersonation at, at first. I felt like his performance there was some other mention of this. Um, Carpenter said on the cover of Jeff's script, he had a bird, this noble mm-hmm. bird staring. And he realized, oh, that's what he's doing. He's playing a bird in some ways, but it's also internally the nobility of this animal. And I, as I was watching it again, I was like, man, he, those, those movements, his head movements, yeah, looks like a bird. <laughs> he stu- Apparently he studied birds bird's head movements are, yeah that's what he was trying to mimic that's what i right. read or saw i watched this fucking youtube thing yeah apparently he was studying he was studying bird bird movements and you can it, it, it seems legit yeah it is it was not not so s- subtle mm-hmm. um but it's not over the top either you know what i mean no it's good it, it, it gave it a great flavor I, I did see something on IMDb too that said that he had studied ornithology and behavior right. of birds, yeah, yeah. but I don't know how deep you got to get. In the... Yeah, I don't know if that's true. I, all the interviews I saw with with Jeff Bridges, he he never talked about birds. Oh, really? Well, it kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like yeah, to believe uh, it's true. I uh, think it's right when when he's talking. Uh, did you get the sense that he just looked like a bad, well, not a bad, but you know, like an overdubbed, uh, samurai film. <laughs> like with his lip movements and yeah, stuff. Like his lip movements and his, his mouth's kind of moving a little bit more than the words call for just a little slightly. Yeah. Like they're the mouth movements are off from the, the syllables and, uh, cause he's learning to talk in this new body of he's in. I mean, right, it's really yeah. good, but it's like, um, yeah, it's like a samurai film, a dubbed, an English dubbed samurai film. Yeah, I can see that. That goes back to that whole imitation of trying to be human mm-hmm. where he's going through the movements. But Yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not cheesy at all. It just reminded me of it. I also saw that John Carpenter wanted Tom Cruise for the movie. That was his first choice, but Tom Cruise was doing Legend, or did, did Legend. That's and, right. And then apparently Kevin Bacon, of course, was in the mix, and then he hired Jeff Bridges. That's what I've heard. But Karen Allen, my God, she's the best, man. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, yeah. The, the the cast is pretty, I mean, not huge. There's definitely, definitely some recognizable faces. Uh, oh, Charles yeah. Martin Smith, too. Who played Mark Sherman, the mm-hmm. the SETI yeah uh, scientist? Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But that I, actor, he, I love that actor. He, and Karen, we'll go back to Karen Allen too, because you know, huge in you know, like Indiana Jones movies. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think that's probably where she's the most memorable. Scrooged. And Scrooged, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's made a ton of movies and, and TV stuff Dude, as well. Just, re- just real quick, that, that bedroom scene, the very first scene where the orb of light comes in and he starts um, cloning himself to be her dead husband when she's laying mm-hmm. in bed in her underwear. How Sigourney Weaver in Alien is that scene? <laughs> hundred percent it's like yeah like she gets she, yeah she's just traipsing around in her tight white underwear <laughs> uh, yeah it's just they're selling that you know yeah yeah and anyway i just reminded me <laughs> i didn't even make that connection but you're totally yeah yeah seems like it it's that sci-fi that sci-fi sexiness yep yeah well this movie almost didn't get made i mean it was E.T. the year before. I thought E.T. was after. E.T. was before, but and it was it was so similar that that Carpenter was like, uh, we we gotta we gotta hold off on this. I thought it was the studio that because it wasn't called E.T. yet. It was called Night Skies, and they decided to do Starman instead. And then then Spielberg took it to Universal. And they tweaked the script even more, and it Night Skies ended up becoming E.T. and not even on, not even with Columbia. It went to Universal because they decided to do, to do Starman first. That's what I, that's what I gathered. So Columbia fucked up big time. Yeah, they passed on the the big script <laughs> anyway. big time. Well, and they, I, I think that they were working on it the same. Like, so they went with Starman. And they were having trouble getting a director. Mm-hmm. And then E.T. came out and it was a blockbuster. Oh, okay. So it was, they were, the Columbia was talking about Night Skies at the same time, decided to mm-hmm. go with Starman, but E.T. actually came out first on Universal or with Universal. Right. And, and so they were kind of rethinking things and their directors were dropping off because they got better hmm. uh, offers for something that wasn't like adult E.T. Right crazy oh this movie also i don't know if it was the same time of year but in the same year it was also competing with dune dune came out in 84 oh yeah well and the the best actor nomination for jeff bridges ended up going to the guy that played uh mozart in um amadeus tom hulse yeah tom hulse he was the the winner that year oh that was a great film too anyway There was an, an interesting history, though, t- to this film, uh, just in terms of its development mm-hmm. and how they, you know, I think that each director that was offered the script had different ideas for it. And when Carpenter had pitched to the producer team the idea that it would be like a more of a low budget love story, that's what got them to sign on because they, they didn't want to go over 20 million. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, worked together, Carpenter and I think it was Franco, Larry Franco was the main producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they earmarked something like two million bucks for the special effects, and that's kind of what set them on that path of um, trying to keep it like let's keep all the effects low key. And then they turn around and they hire like the best guys in the business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, why, why are we doing it for so low? Like, what? How come we yeah. can't use more money? Your whole budget's just paying them. Right. 
So there was, I think there was a lot of disappointment for people that were following these effects guys and the movie comes out and there, it wasn't like this crazy alien throughout the movie. It was just Jeff Bridges acting like right. a, a bird. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Well, Michael Douglas produced this movie too. That's right. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. I, mean, he, into his I guess pockets. he had optioned the script and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. He did a lot of that sort of thing. I don't, I'm not, I don't have all of his, uh, producer credits but Neither do I. you like to produce the movie yeah and I, I did make this connection a few of these people in the cast and crew were also in like the jewel of the nile and shit so i feel like there's some hmm. of that incestuousness going on a lot of uh oh yeah whatever the, people what, the kind of a version of nepotism yeah people like to work with each other yeah it's cool it's a big family keep your friends close uh, speaking of which, I, I just want to say thank you to all of the various filmmakers out there in the world. It wouldn't happen without you. So thank you, Jason, for doing <laughs> movies. Oh, yeah, no worries. I haven't made a film in almost 20 years. <laughs> I just carry I just carry heavy shit. <laughs> it's still part of the process. Come on. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I've, a couple of times I've kind of said some negative things about filmmakers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's it is a rough industry, but something that I I have a lot of respect for, and I I hope that it continues on forever and ever. Oh yeah, uh, it will some one way or another. Anywho, so the cast, I wanted to mention that. Charles Martin Smith, he, he was in a few things, but my, my favorite movie that he did was Never Cry Wolf in 1983, the year before this one came out. This is Mark Sherman, Seti guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was also in The Untouchables. He's one of the few act or one of the kind of many actors in this film where, yeah, you see him, you know who he is, but you can't place him. He's in everything. He's right. in a lot of stuff. Yeah. He's in Buddy Holly, dude. He's the bass player in the fucking crickets. <laughs> in the Buddy Holly movie, I'm pretty damn sure. Yeah, it's him and Gary Busey. He did a lot. Anyway, that guy, okay. that guy's in a lot of stuff. American Graffiti as well. Mm-hmm. I just got that vision of him playing, making a super goofy face on the stand-up bass when he starts like rocking <laughs> out. When he's re- he's really feeling it. He's yeah, like shaking his Method leg. Method actor. And shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not a huge cast. Mm-mm. You know, it's mainly no. just the two of them doing the road trip, you know? No, but that guy, Mickey Jones, the trucker, he, mm-hmm. he's another one of those guys. He always plays a biker. <laughs> Fucking Dirk Blocker, the son of Haas, the guy from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, plays a cop. MC Ganey is another cop. He's also yeah. a guy. You see his face and you're like, I know that fucking guy. Right. Uh, and one of the guys in the movie actually played Jason Voorhees once. Oh. The, the The hunter. Like behind behind the mask or whatever. Yeah, he was one of like a couple uncredited Jasons in the final chapter. Even the waitress in the restaurant scene, she's like, you yeah. know, who, you know who she is. I don't know her fucking name. I know. Yeah, so that was Lou Leonard. That's her name. But that's her real name. Yeah, uh, she looked familiar, but I I don't I don't know what else I do. I've seen her a hundred things. Right. She, yeah, it's just Back like in everyone else. Yeah, everyone else in this movie. Well, not everyone, but. A lot of people, you just, a lot of recognizable faces, you know? 
1977, Voyager 2 was launched into space to the outermost regions of the universe. It carried an invitation in all languages for alien life forms to visit our planet. Someone, somewhere, listened and accepted our invitation. So, we start out with um, Voyager 2 flying through space. Mm-hmm. And you you can hear I can't get no satisfaction playing, which, which is, is not, not <laughs> it's not on Voyager two. It's, it's not on the record. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I f- I think he wanted to be able to use that lyric. Yeah, in in the scene coming Makes up later. Sense. So here we go. We're ruining the movie. Ruining the movie. Johnny B. Goods on that record. Yeah. Yeah, that on the golden record. Yeah, the actual yeah. Voyager two golden record sent up into space, inviting alien life to come visit planet Earth. In I've read fifty. The movie says fifty four. I've read fifty five languages. They set yeah. up a bunch of music, sounds from Earth, greetings, images, pictures of Earth, everything, and they sent up like a needle and a fuck. I think they sent up everything to play the record. Right and. uh yeah, Jeff Bridges' character, the Orb of Light, has it in his spaceship when he crashes to Earth in Wisconsin. Well, the other thing about the the Voyager two that was floating through space, they, they get like a close up of it after the mothership picks it up. I think. Yeah, it's like a Dire they, Straits they, video at the beginning there. <laughs> but he's got they like show like a video playing. Yeah, and it doesn't have a video screen on on Voyager two. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think they had images embedded into the record. Yeah, there were, but there was like 115 or 116 images that were sent along, uh, you know, of planet Earth encoded right or whatever the fuck. I don't know what you do in the 70s on a golden record sent to space. Uh, I talked about this on my show once, episode 21 of Lost Rhetoric. Pay attention, everybody. <laughs> they sent a golden record that? with, I mean, this is like the first MP3. Is this the first flash drive? Like, like what are they? They're sending up a, a vinyl record with pictures encoded on it, and right, you know, I don't know. Okay, so that we get that, and they, that's that's the signal to go and say hi to Earth, and so the mothership sends the blue orb alien later to become Mister Jeff Bridges, and so the ship's uh, entering the atmosphere, and suddenly, I don't know, is he a general, major, something like that, gets notified. That there's something approaching. George Fox. George Fox. That's right. Like the, yeah. like the college here in Portland. They don't try to do too much other than launch some jets and and shoot down. Yeah, they fire at it right away. Yeah. Crash lands in Wisconsin, right? Mm-hmm. Chamagwin Bay. Yeah, Chamagwin right. Bay apparently because he crashes on. Mm-hmm one side of the bay and then leaves his wreckage and floats across the bay. Right. I thought that that scene was pretty cool. What, uh, mm-hmm. how they portray his point of view. Mm-hmm. It kind of looked like they yeah. were using like a gel over the camera lens, but then there was like this reflection of like an, like a blue eye almost. Mm-hmm. So you see like a flash. I was kind of wondering, like, if that was a physical effect or something that they was like a mat or something like that later on. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know how they would have pulled that one off. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like a POV of the orb floating over the the bay into Jenny Hayden's house, 
and it's totally absorbing data. Like it's looking at the car, it's looking at the lights, it's looking at things, it's figuring how it's taking in all sorts of information. But yeah, it like blinks, mm-hmm. kind of, kind of like it's like it's taking snapshots, it kind of. But if, yeah, if you notice, like if you look at when those the flash happens, the that moment, it looks like there's like a a blue orb in the center so it and it looks like an eye it looked like an eye to me um outside of like or inside of the the blue haze and i mm. thought that was that was a cool effect really i wanted yeah. to know more i i don't have the i want to get like the blu-ray with the commentary and see if they talk about that talk to jesse gee about it yeah he might know huh so yeah we're getting close to the your favorite scene here yeah so he's floating around in the uh, the room and picking up some some ideas about this person turning in the projector on and off and then finding the the hair follicles. Yeah, because right before the orb crashes, Jenny Hayden, played by Karen Allen, is drinking wine and watching film on a projector of her recently deceased husband, who we find out died in an accident that they don't explain at all what the accident is. He just died in an accident. But her husband is Jeff Bridges. Right. And she's watching footage of Jeff Bridges and her singing songs and shooting guns and hanging out. And then the orb shows up and starts absorbing all of her dead husband's information and pictures. And you mentioned he finds a lock of hair. Yeah, which was in one of the books that she had left sitting out. A photo book. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his head comes out, a 3D uh, image of his head comes out and turns 360 and it like scans it. Yeah, that was a hologram. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a hologram. A hologram that's, for that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> that was a cool sequence. Uh, I'm guessing that was one of the the big budget effects that they paid for. Yeah, <laughs> one of the few. Well, and I think those visual effects were done by Joe Alves, who did Close Encounters and Jaws. I think he was in charge of that portion, but mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong. Nice. They got some good people on this movie, man. It was a huge team. It was kind of surprising to see so many names, like big names. So many names, they effects. didn't list them all. So many <laughs> names, they just had to put and crew in the cast or in the credits. <laughs> It should be John Carpenter and crew. Good, <laughs> good night, everybody. <laughs> I, I, I did like that sequence too. Like, so he they finds the hair, and, and all of a sudden he's just you're just like zooming in and in and in to that follicle until you get into like the the nano realm or something. Mm-hmm. You get into that DNA, mm-hmm. and then we get into the physical effects. Yeah, because Karen Allen, Jenny Hayden is fast asleep in her underwear on the bed in the Sigourney Weaver moment oh, while, yeah. while all this is happening. Right. So she's just like, she likes to just take her pants off and crash. You know, she just had a bunch of wine. That's lake living. I didn't realize that it was like kind of like a Sigourney Weaver-esque. Is that what that happened in 1979, Alien? The baby scene. Tell me about the baby scene. This is your favorite scene. Well... Okay, so the orb comes in and collects all the data it needs to clone itself to be Scott, I'm assuming Hayden, since her name is Jenny Hayden. And while she's sleeping, he's collecting all this data, and then 
uh, materializes in physical form from fucking birth to a full-grown man in like a minute. And Jenny Hayden wakes up, walks out into the living room, does not seem shocked at all that there's a baby laying on her living room floor. And then it just rapidly turns into, you know, like a, I don't know, eight, nine-year-old boy. And the boy looks at her and it's a real boy. And then it starts transitioning into a teenager. And that's when the the practical, like actual effects get kind of awesome. And I don't know, I guess they're kind of cheesy or hokey. But this whole, this body, he's growing just super rapidly. And then uh, there's effects that show this, his face gets stretched all out, kind of funny as it's, as he's going. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was freaky. There's there's some cool stuff. And then he, you know, by the end of it, he's a naked Jeff Bridges standing in the living room and he turns around and it's her husband looking at her and she faints. That's right. Yeah. Didn't he try to say a few things to her before she goes out. He was talking about her uh, speaking in Chinese. Yeah, he was definitely, I think he was saying greetings from the record in one of the 54 languages. He kept kind of trying to say hi or something. Yeah, exactly. First contact. Yeah, in different languages. How much English do you understand? I understand greetings in 54 planet Earth languages. But as soon as, the thing is, like he absorbs, he says in the movie, like, Everything I hear, I see, everything this body feels, he remembers it all. So as soon as he sees something or hears something, it's locked in. He learns it immediately. So when she starts talking, he starts kind of talking English to her a little bit. Right. Poorly. Poorly. Very poorly. Figuring it out. Yeah. He asks a lot of questions throughout the movie, like define this, define this, define this, you know. Right. Yeah. It's part of the the humor. Mm Mm-hmm as well but yeah that that baby scene re- reminded me of the thing like obviously yeah, yeah. some of the same guys you know working on this but um it was it was you know disturbing a little it's bit it's kind of gross mm-hmm. but it's it's fucking funny that's cool I, it's cool though. it's like what 30 seconds a minute I, I didn't time it but yeah it's it's pretty damn quick it was i thought it was well done for the time yeah absolutely and she fainted Jenny Hayden's reaction to the whole thing was just so subdued. She was just like walked in and was didn't make a sound, just started watching it transpire. And like not weird, didn't seem weirded out at all. <laughs> it's kind of I mean, to me it felt like she was in shock. And like she does it the whole movie, it's pretty well. I mean, she does it pretty yeah. well. Like the whole thing is fucking weird. I think the whole thing throughout the whole movie, once it turns into her Scott, her husband, she's half scared shitless, but half so intrigued by the fact that she's hanging out with her dead husband again and so stoked in this weird way. It's this crazy dynamic. After he's born, he dumps out these seven gray balls on the floor. Mm-hmm. And those those are pretty key elements to the story here as well. Yeah, they make dreams come true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite literally. Yeah, and he uses that first ball to uh, send his distress signal to the mothership, and that scene that um, had some cool effects as well. So he's basically like Jenny's waking up, and he's outside on the front porch and kind of holding his hands out, and his hair is kind of sticking up. It almost looks like he's getting um, shocked. 
what they actually did was the way that they shot it. So they hung him upside down. Mm-hmm. And so they filmed him hanging oh. upside down. So yeah, he's hanging upside down, but he it looks like he's just standing there in the film. So it's shot right. with a mat and the background is um, added later or whatever, along with like the electrical mm-hmm. charges and whatnot. That was one of the cooler effects was, and it's something simple, you know, it's just uh, you're, you're shooting an actor in a studio mm-hmm. and put piecing it together. So, you know, relatively cheap to, to pull off. You can definitely tell they used uh, smart writing and location to uh, save some money. Right. And that, that's pretty much what John Carpenter was all about, was figuring out easy, cheap ways to get, get these stories told. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, it's, it's the beginning. genius. Yeah. Yeah. Get ready. Someone is coming. Someone like no one she has ever known before. She sees this happening outside and grabs her pants, doesn't put her pants on, puts her boots on, <laughs> and tries to run to the car in her underwear with boots on, looking for the keys, uh, turns around, and uh, Scott, I'm going to just call him Scott from now on, is standing right there. He's Scott now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she screams, and he screams right back at her, and then they're just like, "What? <laughs> yeah. what's going on? And he says, like, we need to get out of here. And so she she's basically like, I'm being kidnapped in her mind. And, uh, yeah, off they, off they go. Yeah, he starts the car with his finger because he can do that. He can manipulate mechanical and electronic objects with his uh, powers. Right. So she's she's having trouble getting it to go. Yeah, but that's like part of the beginning when the orb comes in and scans the car and scans the lamps and he's absorbing all that info and like how these things work. I that's what I was gathering and then hmm. he just knows how to make make it work, you know. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So he's figuring out how all the mechanics by just scanning and he just instantly knows Yeah, that's my functionality. guess. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So yeah, they get going. He he has to start the car because it's like the classic we need to get out of here moment and the car won't start. Mm-hmm. I guess it's an right. opportunity too to show off his powers. That's probably something that yep. John Carpenter was like, let's let's do this. Because it's a sweet car, man. It's a, like an orange and black 77 oh, Mustang. Yeah, it's a, it is a sweet, it's a sweet car. Muscle car, old school. Uh, car, the car is important to the movie. Cars talked about a lot in the movie, actually. <laughs> yeah, it is described exactly how you described it multiple times by the cops and mm-hmm. the pursuers. Yep, Wisconsin plates. So they uh, they head out. Of, they get out of town. They have to stop. They have to use that a second ball. Now, again, he he's only got seven of those gray balls. So I I actually I, I, w- I went through the film and and tracked it because I felt like he was using more than he had, but. He had seven. Oh, nice. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. Yeah. I did that last night. It was like I wanted to make sure I got all the little bits. So, yeah, seven balls. Uh, first one was the distress signal. Second one was used to put up uh, this map. Like, So they're sitting in the car, and he, and he starts projecting this map uh, from his hand uh, after using one of the balls. And 
having Jenny, I need to go here. Where is that? And they figure out it's, she thinks it's Arizona. She's not sure. Mm-hmm. And they headed out on the road. Jenny is, is getting pretty pissed because she wants to know, like, why is he doing this? Where are you from? And he just comes back with that. I can't get no satisfaction. He's singing the, mm-hmm. the song. And she's like, um, I can't take this. And <laughs> veers off and uh, plays chicken with that van coming head on. They swing around and then he, uh, they, they get out and she's yelling for help. And so he, he uses one of his, his balls, the third ball, to uh, scare the guy off. Mm-hmm. And as he's yelling, greetings, <laughs> greetings. He's like, what, uh, what is wrong with you? And uh, so he, he basically lights the lug wrench on fire mm-hmm. with uh, that third ball. It seems like he kind of eagerly uses those things. Like he's got seven. Yeah. But he's just like, oh, let's use another one. Yeah. Well, he also blew up a fucking tree behind the yeah, guy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Way up in the... Yeah. He's like flames and... Yeah, he uh, went full like wizard on his ass. It, it seems cool. like he... He, he might want to conserve those yeah. a little bit more than just like showing off to some pyrotechnics. Yeah. But you know, uh, he, uh, he must've felt it was his only way out. Uh, he was, he's pretty nonviolent, which, you know, we'll, we'll find out a little yeah. bit more later too. Yeah, absolutely. The, the guy runs off and, and that does lead to a little more news back to his, um, pursuers. Mm-hmm. But so they're they're traveling along, and they they do need more gas because and he doesn't understand. So she's like, <laughs> you know, we're the car is uh, running out of of gas. Like, I do not understand how <laughs> can car need energy so soon. Yeah, <laughs> which is you know it makes sense because he's this like highly intelligent, advanced uh, alien that they would probably just have some nuclear. Yeah. vision stuff going on who knows right yeah good he, he it's just a dig at at uh all the oil barons and all the all the petroleum freaks out in in the world uh what about the electric car you know i mean who killed it this guy <laughs> this guy's like man this is pretty primitive shit well and this this movie is so much of a road trip movie and that's mm-hmm. a big big part of this it is John Carpenter wanted to show off how beautiful America was, you know, and, and tell this love story, alien love story. And uh, part of that is the car. Yeah, 77 Mustang, orange and black, Wisconsin tags. <laughs> of course it needs gas. I mean, it's a, it's a guzzler. Yeah, you have to stop for gas every uh, two and a half hours. <laughs> Pretty much that thing. Was it like an eight cylinder? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, V six for sure, at least. Yeah. So they were they stopped for gas. They there was an issue where she was trying to put up a note on the mirror that mm-hmm. says kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is that was her second attempt to uh, get away from them. This one was on the sly. You know, the first. See, what was the first? The first was the one we just talked about when she p- calls the wreck. Gotcha. Right. But, yeah, and then the second one is she tries to secretly leave a note in the girls' room, which he walks in. He tries to walk in right behind her because he doesn't know, and he goes and she points him to the men's bathroom. Which, by the way, as a guy who pushes Dolly every once in a while, 
I don't know, I was noticing there's a, a dolly move when they go from the girls room to the boys room and it's pretty jerky and I can't tell if it's the dolly grip or the camera operator, but there's this like jerky pan and they kind of like mm-hmm. the dolly's pulling back, but the camera's panning left. Anyway, I noticed I, someone look at it and tell me if I'm crazy, but it looks like there's a, a kind of an awkward jump with the camera there <laughs> when he, when she leads him to the men's bathroom, but that's where Mickey Jones shows up, which is one of the actors who everyone knows, but you, you don't know his name cause he's in everything, but the uh, guy that he runs into in the bathroom. Yeah. He has an awkward encounter with the trucker cause he's just awkward as shit. And the guy thinks he's coming on to him. So he flips him off and says up yours. And that's where he learns. This is kind of important in the story. He learns to flip people off and say up yours. And it meant take it easy. He's like, you know, sticking his thumb up and he says, take it easy. And then he sticks his middle finger up and he's like, up yours. Like he's learning how to greet people. It's a pretty funny scene. Right. He doesn't he doesn't take offense to it because he doesn't know what it is. Right. He's anyway, still learning. He's still learning yeah. the ropes. Yeah, but they they eventually leave the gas station and he had gone into the girl's bathroom and found the note. And as they're driving off, he's like, what's kidnapped? Define, you know, he's like asking her to define all that stuff. And then this is big. This is when she learns that he is a nonviolent person who's not there to cause her any harm, you know? Right. Right. I'm getting, I'm getting some alien sounds behind me here. (laughs) Yeah. That's a pretty dramatic scene because he points the gun right at her. He has a gun. He points it right at her because she's like, Tell me what's going on. Like she's demanding to just know what the fuck he plans to do with her. And he points the gun right at her fucking face and drops the clip out. Very dramatic yeah, that, way. That, that was very, it was disturbing. I mean, cause you, you yeah. don't, you, you don't think that he's going to do anything, but yet he's yeah. pointing it right at her face. Yeah. That is, like, that was, a, I'm sure John Carpenter or somebody with, producer or someone's breathing like make it more dramatic like create this tense moment and then (laughs) drops the clip instead of pulling the trigger it is kind of a tense moment because it happens just as fast as pulling the trigger and then he's like i mean you no harm and he looks at her with like gentle eyes and everything's kind of okay you think after that between the two of them right Hey, puppy. Hi, puppy. You got to calm it down. Lay down. <laughs> Lay down. All right, hopefully she'll settle. You're going to have to point a gun at her head, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Never. Don't ever say that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> hey! <laughs> calm it down! <laughs> You got you to gotta keep this. <laughs> it's going in. Uh, yeah, well, there was something else, too, around. Um, oh, the, well, the, the hungry scene. So he's, he doesn't understand this emptiness. This body has a terrible emptiness, he mm-hmm. says. Mm-hmm. This is called hunger? Yeah. This you have. Called, no, wait, no. We, you have hungry, too? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that was. Uh, was that. That was after the the gas scene, yeah, right, yeah, like right after, right after he dropped the clip. What's funny is, like, the next scene is he's just driving. 
It, right. Yeah. Because <laughs> he learns everything so fast. She's sleeping and he's just driving. And uh, he runs the yellow light because she ran a yellow light and he caused a big accident. She's all pissed off at him. And right. it's a pretty funny moment because uh, he's like, I watched you very carefully. You know, it's like red, stop, green, go, yellow, go very fast or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's exactly what she did. That's probably one of the more memorable lines from, from the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, pe- people will, will mention that scene and uh, be like, I, I, whenever I see a yellow light, uh, this is what I'm thinking from Starman. <laughs> I, I, dude, I did it the other day. I swear I did it. I ran a yellow light that exact way. And I, <laughs> that line went right through my head because I just watched the movie, but uh, it's just, not it's a bad bad habit, right? Yeah, you got to be careful. Mm-hmm. Dangerous. Don't starman that shit, <laughs> especially in front of a, a tractor trailer uh, carrying a bunch of hay bales, which is a popular thing to All crash right. in movies. <laughs> the hay bale. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because so much action out of it. Uh, there was, um, so another scene kind of interspersed there going back to, um, their, their pursuers and Mm -hmm. they're, they're talking about how he took over this dead painter's body, Mm -hmm. um, and they found some hairs at the scene. We never really find out what happened to the original Scott, like how he died. They just say it was an accident. That's it. Right. And they, they get into this discussion about like their, the technology and like, well, how, how could this be? How, how could he do this? Can you clone a living organism from the hair of a dead man? We're hypothesizing a technology that's probably 100,000 years ahead of him. He has powers we cannot imagine. And they, the, the two scientists in the room start kind of explaining how we are the ancients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was an in- interesting take on just a consideration of where where we really are as a society we always consider ourselves very highly advanced and whatnot and we're yeah. really not is he, is he saying we are the ancients or they are the ancients because no, he said we are the ancients because we're mm-hmm. we're so far behind in our technological advancements mm-hmm. compared to this alien race we would be considered the ancients of of their civilization so to speak. Oh, I thought he was saying they were the ancients because they have so much wisdom and we're so primitive and young as a species. That's what I took from it. Hmm. But I don't, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> well, then they're talking about um, you know, missionaries and cannibals. Mm. And that scene ended with, um, is it Mark Sherman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, he says, um, "Who is the missionary and who are the cannibals?" Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, is true. Like where he's always prote- trying to protect like this in- intelligent life, mm-hmm. uh, while also just kind of commenting on on that situation. I guess I don't know who who is the missionary. Like, yeah, he, he's he's the missionary, and and we are the cannibals. Is basically what he's saying there. Yeah, yeah, we're a bunch of fucking idiots. And that don't know any better. And he knows that we can learn something from him if we actually talk to him. And, you know, we invited him here. 
So stop with the aggression is all he's been trying to say this whole fucking time. And this scene starts out with the greatest line of the whole movie, the greatest little small monologue here. George Fox, the asshole military guy, starts the whole scene by saying, do you seriously expect me to tell the president that an alien has landed, assume the identity of a dead house painter from Madison, Wisconsin, and is presently out tooling around the countryside in a hopped up orange and black 1977 Mustang. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So good. That's a great line. Yeah. And that's true. That's the whole, uh, that's the truth, but he can't tell the truth because it's so weird. (laughs) Right. Kind of an interesting synopsis for the film. But that's what it is. That's what it is in real life. In our real world, no, they can't tell the truth. They can't bring about full disclosure because they don't want people to freak the fuck out. The people who just can't handle it. They're just like, you really want me to tell everyone that this is what's going on? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. You can't go to the president and say something they, like that. They don't do that, you know? That's why we. That's why we. They keep us in the dark and they lie to us, Jeff, all the time. This is true. That's the. That's what they do. Yep. Oh yes, we do find out too that he has to be there by noon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Arizona, at the big meteor crater. Lovely place. Yeah, yeah, and it it's a it's a pretty big deal. I mean, if, if he misses the ship, he will die. He will die. Got to get there on time. Yeah. He's got a date. He has an expiration date, basically. So it seems like the his body will only last for a few days. So there are some limitations to the, this uh, this whole process. Yeah, it's a race against it's, time. He's on, they're on the clock. Yeah, but it, it did seem like to, to jump to towards the ending there. Uh, he he's looking very haggard. Mm-hmm. and uh out of energy it the, his performance for this is, is amazing I'm, I'm not sure if it was assisted with a little bit of uh cosmetics or, or something else yeah i could kind of at- tell i could tell towards the end you could they're like kind of looked like they put a little bit of baggage under his eyes you know a little discoloration and he looked a little more pale than normal but it wasn't like dramatic you know he was all in his performance. He looked like he was losing energy and right, just like out yeah. of it. You know, it almost seemed like his eyes were drooping too. Like, mm-hmm. like I don't know, it was his face is falling off. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. All right, and then they so they progress to the uh, the diner. They, they finally fill their hunger. Yeah, after after the gas station. So we went all the way to the very end, and now we're going back to the diner scene. Yeah, that's, so that was uh, right right after the the scenes where they were talking about the the cannibals and missionaries, right. as well as being on the road and discussing uh, the the timing. And this diner scene's pretty crucial, man. He run they run into the rednecks with the deer on the hood, and this is when you really learn that Starman is very compassionate because. There's a dead deer on the hood of this car and he he's concerned and uh, he he asks he asks what what it is like why basically and then he asks 
do deer eat people? And she's mm-hmm. like, no. And he's like, do people eat people? <laughs> she's like, no, of course not. Who do you think we are? And then he says, I think you are a very primitive people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah. Yeah. That's just like life lessons, folks. And, you know, then she tries to sneak out of the restaurant again after they have a tender moment. And then he brings the deer back to life and the hunter gets pissed off at him. That's right. And they, they do when they're sitting there and, and uh, he, he learns about the, the pie, which is Dutch mm-hmm. apple pie. He loves it. He loves it. And they're also talking about her and Scott's previous relationship. And, and she tells mm-hmm. him that he is dead. But he may not have really known that. It at least appears to in this in this scene. He didn't really know. And the face and touch of the man she loved. Oh God. I send greetings. What's the matter with you? Um, and they talk about honeymoon and mm-hmm. defining love. Yeah, he's learning a lot. He's gleaning a lot from this conversation. Yeah, and uh, basically having like a a mouth orgasm. Yeah, <laughs> he eats the Dutch apple pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, lo- he loves it. Yeah, it goes back to his his performance was was just spot on and and very mm-hmm. unique. Yep, I can't imagine anybody else being in this role. For sure, no, man. Yeah, and so that that brings us to the the use of the fourth ball uh, for the deer. Yeah, Jenny tries to sneak out the back to a bus. Right. And gives her keys and whatever to the waitress who doesn't seem to mind that Jenny just like waltzed into the kitchen. Um, and then right. and uh, that, that was uh, Lou Leonard, who was that yeah. waitress. Right. Yeah. Another actress. You, you know her when you see her. Exactly. But then Jenny turns around and Starman's out in the parking lot fucking with that deer. Instead of hopping on the bus, she, uh, you know, goes to check on him. Yeah, she decides to stick with him. Uh, after the, she sees that compassion, maybe is as part mm. of the equation for her. I think so. Yeah, there there was some dire in that situation. Like they had to get out of there, mm-hmm. but but she did have that moment where the waitress came out and be like, "Are you sure about this, honey?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she made a conscious decision to stay. She had she could have left. She, she, it was a perfect situation. She had the out and then she decided to stay. She's like, all right, I'm sticking with this guy. He's a good guy. I'm going to help him get off this fucking shit planet because the, the rednecks, the hunters beat him up. Right. That's right. Yeah. Once he, you know, let the deer go. Yeah. They beat his ass. They beat his ass. And he, and he was mimicking um, that guy as well. Like he, he's always mm-hmm. mimicking constantly. Yeah, and he doesn't mean any offense. He's just saying what they say, and you know, learning. He doesn't even understand the violence. So yeah, he, he does return the punch right. that he receives from the hunter, um, but then he's just standing there while his goons come rushing at him. Yeah, that's a pretty just, funny little scene. Yeah, he just stands there and looks confused as like four guys bum rush him right yeah Yeah. he has no idea what's going on because they don't have violence on his planet they don't do that shit exactly and then and then jenny comes to the rescue with the the handgun that 
she's afraid <laughs> of. Yeah, that's another thing too. It's like it's just cool to pop off guns and shoot in the parking lot. Like no one seemed to give a fuck. Uh, waitress <laughs> just comes out like, "You still want to catch that bus after you just you know yeah. shot that gun?" And uh, like the hunters don't have guns. They don't have guns to bust out. They just like huddle around all scared of this lady with the gun. And like, you guys obviously have guns too. <laughs> right. Let's right. get a fucking gunfight going. What's happening here? <laughs> they don't have a chance. <laughs> I mean, she's got yeah. the gun out and they're, they they got to go and maybe bust them out of the trunk or something. Yeah. I don't know. They, they, they then, blew their opportunity. I know that much. They could have had a real g- good old fashioned gunfight. <laughs> with an alien but this is a this is a love story jason <laughs> love truly it truly is but it this is. is a tender moment man this is like this is the moment she realizes yeah she likes this guy yeah i think so she's on board and um, committed 100 percent. yep she's gonna see it through so now they jump back in the car and they're on their way and uh the hunters are foiled in their pursuit and they do come across well they don't really know it but they pass up some cops Mm -hmm. there's a good line here that i thoroughly enjoyed and the cops see this orange and black 77 mustang with wisconsin plates Mm -hmm. and and one of them says you know they notice and he says uh well kick her in the ass i think we got the bastard (laughs) i love that Love that oh, line. Uh, I know we already, I think we already mentioned it, but who the two cops are, Dirk Blocker and MC Ganey. Um, oh, yeah. Also, two actors you know when you see them. Well, and this was, this is their first appearance, though, correct? Yeah, because they're in some fucking town just passing through and they're local cops. And yeah, they're only in it for this scene, basically, or these few scenes. Because they get a hotel room. They just set it up as a bunch of college kids running around in the parking lot when they pull up to park. I just look at it as it's the away team's party or something at the hotel for some tournament. I really, it's like so strange. The cops like tail them there and they're trying to be discreet and they follow them. And yeah, Jenny and um, Scott get a room. What what was there was a discussion too once they get to the hotel the cops are talking about uh, they they get the shit end of the stick mm-hmm. when the cop says this might just develop into a life threatening situation yeah they're trying to be heroes yeah they want they don't want to just sit back and wait for the the feds to come in right yeah which which actually gives the uh, our our heroes here the the advantage absolutely. So they get a warning from one of the college kids, right? They come up to their hotel room. There was another scene here too, where in the hotel room, and and Jenny's just kind of talking away, right? And oh, uh, yeah, yeah. she's a, she's about to take off her clothes to get into the shower, and she mentions like, "Whoa, I, I'm so comfortable around you now." Yeah, she thought he was Scott. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She said, I, "I'm feeling a little punchy." Hmm. Yeah, and he's sitting there watching uh, from here to eternity on TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what that is. Yeah, and, and getting some ideas about uh, the future, uh, future sex scenes. Oh yeah, he learns how to passionately kiss, and he almost like 
awkwardly he goes up to her while she's sleeping in the bed and he's about ready to like wake her up with a practice kiss which would be very awkward and um <laughs> the jock frat guy knocks on the door and he's like hey man there's two right. cops two cops trying to break into your car <laughs> yeah he called it they're trying to jigger the lock jigger the lock jigger the I, lock i never heard of that word before jigger so that's that's when they they escape and kind of escape anyway the cops the jocks cause a diversion and uh yeah jenny and scott skip out on the sly and then a chase occurs car chase yeah yeah and and he kind of does something that was not so smart he picks up the gun mm, yeah true and that's when the cops you know they they see the gun and i don't think cops would really do this but they start shooting like right away yeah <laughs> they're speeding yeah, down the, the highway it's the movies yeah cause he yeah. pointed he had a gun in his hand and he's driving jenny's in the passenger seat and right. they're on the passenger side the cops are so guess who gets shot jenny old jenny gets yeah. shot and killed yeah and then we get some more special effects here so the car is basically barreling towards a um, it looked like a, a fuel tanker truck that was mm-hmm. over on its side on the highway. Yeah, they're they're approaching an accident at high speeds, right towards yes. a a tanker. Yeah, he whips out the fifth ball. So this is ball mm-hmm. number five. He's down to two more after this one. Mm-hmm. So she's already. I mean, she looks like she's dead. Yeah, I assume but she's definitely dead. He, Maybe so they they well they they crash into this thing and the the ball basically preserves him and her in her current state and they they use kind of a, a an old school effect with the the blue outline but like it, that was like the effects of the ball like protecting them I guess from the fiery explosion mm-hmm. but that would that would have been more um, like green screen type work. Yeah, mm-hmm. with a, some mat shots. I imagine. Uh, yeah, because they, they just emerged from that fucking inferno. He's holding her like a goddamn hero. The hero that he is. <laughs> just pulling her, just walking. They crash, they blow up, and then just walk right out of the fire. Unscathed, practically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there was kind of this awkward scene, too, after that. And we see Mark Sherman again. He's got... Uh, a walkie-talkie in, in hand. And it's, it's a weird scene to me because he's just standing there talking to the walkie-talkie as if he's like narrating the story to us. Mm-hmm. No one's responding. He's just like explaining what happened previously. Yeah, that, it seems like they're filling in some... Sherman fills in some plot gaps with his dialogue sometimes because mm-hmm. that's, that's all this is, is... Him saying on the ground, a couple people told him that they saw him and her walk from the fire. And he thinks that they're still alive and they're on their way to Arizona because I think that at this time they have determined. They have determined that with the trajectory of the UFO that he was heading to Arizona, right? Or is that still to come? I think that was earlier on. Okay. 
uh, it could be in the middle here somewhere, but they did, yeah, some calculations and showed like he should have been there. So they, they knew that he was heading towards Arizona. Yeah. So Sherman's just like, I, some people on the ground said that they saw him walk out of the fire. So I'm basically going to keep acting like they're alive and heading the same way. So I'm, I'm going to, I think he's like, says he's going to Colorado or something to try to meet him there before they get to Arizona or some shit. That's right. So the pursuit's still on. Yes. And now it's just uh, Starman and the dead Jenny. Mm-hmm. But they, they make their escape inside of a, a mobile home that was uh, on its way to a destination. Mm-hmm. And that's when he uses the sixth ball. So this is when... Oversized load. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he uses that sixth ball, so he's down to just the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a cool prop in that scene, too. Where What's that? He had that light-up hand. Oh, yeah. The big glowing hand with the lights in it. Yeah, it, can, like, it, it glowed red, and then it had like some flashing lights that went up. Mm-hmm. And we that was the first time we really seen that much detail from the usage mm-hmm. of uh, one of the the gray balls. Yeah, you figured bringing someone back to life would be a a two ball scenario, but I guess those balls can do little things and very big things. Just one, uh, but it seemed yeah. like it took more work to bring a person back to life. It was. It was a to-do for him. Right. But this is one of those moments that we were talking about production, pretty genius money-saving techniques for, uh, they get the establishing shot of the manufactured home on the trailer, but then the scene just takes place on a stage with like two walls Mm. and carpet. Right. Whatever, a few lights, few flags outside the fucking window, because the curtains are up on the windows inside and- it's just a very simple set that was built and lit. I'm sure it was overlit, not as easy as it looks, <laughs> but uh, very clever. Yeah, yeah, and, and all practical effects. I imagine. I mean, with with like that the light up hand prop, there was nothing yeah. necessarily to do in post. I mean, just think about it. They 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 fit in a house set on a road trip. Because the house is moving. Right. Like they just need two fucking walls. That's so smart. But they're still yeah. on the road. They just got to shake. They got to do a little uh, poor man's process, I'm sure. Shaking of the, make the curtains shake a little bit. Make the house mm-hmm. sway a little bit. Make it looks like it's on a tractor trailer. And uh, boom, there you go. Yeah, if I remember right too, there's like the motion of lights, so just kind of swinging some lights through the scene, or maybe yeah. they were on a on a, something that was moving as well. Uh, I'm sure, like I said, poor man's process. I don't know what they were doing. They were probably just panning lights on and off, you know. Yep. Or yep. flag. They were. Well, we as grips will uh, wave flags, solid flags, in front of the lights to create the illusion of car lights or street lamps. So you'll periodically black them out in like a rhythm. I'm sure they do something like that on stage. There you go. A little movie magic for you. Movie magic, baby. Uh, (laughs) Guaranteed. Every time you got to do something like that on set, someone films you doing it and then sends you the video (laughs) because you look kind of silly while you're doing it. 
<laughs> I've actually built some cool rigs like that, like kind of helicopter rigs, like two lights on the one end of a 20 foot pipe and just spinning it over the car. That's oh, yeah. pretty, that's a fun one. Nice. <laughs> when you don't have you the budget, creative. To, when you don't have yeah. the budget for a process trailer. There you go. Yeah. All right. Good times. Yes, sir. That that's behind the scenes with Jason Dinges. <laughs> no, it's good. I love it. I was really impressed with the simplicity of the scene, but how they it's just a smart move. Well, that's how you keep the budget down, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think they did overspend in some spots, but uh that's gonna happen with it's a pretty big production. It's not really a yeah. low budget film. But yeah, she she comes back to life. That's right. But she is now abandoned. He put his jacket on her and uh, went on his way because I guess he he must have known it was going to take some time for her to heal and come back to life. And he didn't have the time to spare. He didn't want to leave, but he he had to. Right. Yeah. So she yeah she's just kind of waking up in the mobile home, runs into the the truck stop and figures out what's going on um she's like i need a i need a ride and uh <laughs> this is after she, she finds out that he took off with the night cook right and of, of course uh when she she's like this you know good looking girl and in a diner filled with truckers and this hot rod <laughs> mechanic kid i'll help you <laughs> <laughs> and they take off. I actually looked up this guy, the Rat Rod guy. He yeah. he uh, turns out he's uh, like an effects guy. He does a lot of like video game work now, like motion capture stuff. That's like his his gig <laughs> in real life. Nice. The the actor who played the 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 Hot Rod guy that gives Jenny a ride to catch up with Starman because she's trying to <laughs> she's trying to meet back up. Like now she's committed. She's like, you're not leaving my ass. <laughs> right. I'm coming to find you. You're not doing this without me. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a role reversal because she was trying to escape. Mm-hmm. And now he's he's trying mm-hmm. to not necessarily escape from her, but he feels like he has endangered her life. And now he needs to just try to move on on his own. And uh, so they come up to a roadblock. She convinces the kid to cause a distraction so they can get out of there. <laughs> this <And> is so... <laughs> the shit cracks me up because they've literally known each other for what twenty minutes. He's but he's young and he's super excited to help this woman. But he convinces her to light a gas can on fire, throw it in the fucking off of the road like a bomb. It fucking explodes. The military is there causing a roadblock checking everyone everyone is filing into a line out of their cars starman is in this line to get checked by the united states military and this fucking hot rodder dude that just met jenny is throwing a bomb and then he peels off in his fucking car the other way and he causes a massive distraction so they can get her out the back but he must have gotten in so much trouble like that is a huge (laughs) you don't do that. He would have gone to jail for so long just to help this lady he just met, you know? Right. And we'll never see again. That is, yeah, that is craziness. 
But hey, it works for the plot. <laughs> That's the it's important like thing. That... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but we don't know what happened. He might have gotten away. Oh yeah, I mean he's got a fast car. Yeah, he's got a yeah he's got a fucking rat rod. I mean they got like planes and helicopters and shit, but he knows the lay of the land, you know. You know the other thing that was um, that that stuck out to me quite literally was that you know he's wearing this bright red hat and shirt, mm-hmm. and they're just they're just like star managers, yeah, yeah, for the whole movie. But like this is roadblock, and all these military yeah. people don't don't see this woman and this bright red man like running down the side of yeah. the embankment and hopping in a truck. A bit much too. Yeah, I mean that's but, the yeah. uh, that is that's a bit that is a bit silly because but the, a bomb went off, so <laughs> you know. I guess it supersedes the red red shirt and hat. That takes them to. Let's see. I think they're in Colorado when that happens, I'm assuming. But then we do get a cutaway mm-hmm. to, well, first of all, they, they jump in that truck. The migrant worker truck is, I think, is what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And they start talking about babies because there's a woman in the back of the truck that has one. And she can't. She's Apparently, they tried to have a baby, her and Scott, previously, and she's not able to have babies. It comes into a, a key moment here in a minute. They basically miraculously get out of the truck and onto a train that just happens to be leaving when they arrive and uh right they they get a blanket and um, that leads us up to the uh the sex scene well you know Uh, that that scene where they jump off onto the train it's pissing rain and that poor lady with her baby is the one that runs a blanket to him in the train car. And then she runs back into the bed of the truck under the little shitty tarp canopy. <laughs> and I can only hope that her little baby is in the cab of the truck and not just <laughs> sitting in the back in the bed under that tarp <laughs> roof. Maybe it was just one of those practice babies. I don't know, man. I just, I was. I was feeling for him because that's some like <laughs> monsoon desert rain right there. Yeah, it is downpour big time. <laughs> so yeah, so they are soaking wet, and that that's one of the reasons uh, they they get a little hot and heavy. She's like, "You got to get out of those clothes. You're going to catch pneumonia." Classic. Get out of those wet clothes. Let me help you. <laughs> it was it was you know a tastefully shot scene. You know it. I, isn't it this film is rated yeah. pg yeah but yeah they don't they don't show anything crazy it's just mostly just kissing and but yeah they did it nicely it was uh mostly kissing all i know is every baby in the pacific northwest is made under that those exact circumstances <laughs> you're, you're soaking wet let me get, get those, those wet clothes clo- off <laughs> let me get those clothes <laughs> wet clothes off of you <laughs> every day a scenario time. could play out <laughs> but yeah I, they have a, a nice it's just you know laying on top of each other and kissing and yeah. the very last little section of that scene the last shot of that scene i thought and maybe go back and look like he's on the bottom she's on the top and they're like rubbing noses but they start kind of giggling and moving their head kind of funny mm-hmm. and it seems to me like they're having a genuine moment 
between Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges where they're laughing and kind of mocking Starman's bird movements. Yeah. Like in real yeah. life, they're just like Karen starts kind of moving like him and he starts moving and then they kind of giggle. And uh, it looks like a really like funny moment between actors to me. During that scene, though, that they, they, they cut away because, you know, they, they got to cut away to something else. And they they showed uh, Gallup, New Mexico, like some as a mm-hmm. command center set up at a raceway. They didn't really explain like what what was going on other than they were setting up. I, I think they were starting to set up the autopsy table, but they didn't really mention that until like a couple of scenes. Yeah, later. you can tell that the military is planning to capture him and lock his ass up. Well, they, eventually there was there was a scene where Mark, Mark was pointing out, like, what are the straps for? You know, this mm-hmm. makeshift autopsy. And yeah, yeah they were going to they were going to do it. They were going to cut him up. At least that's what George Fox wanted to do. Yeah, and that's the famous line. He like he like flicks one of the straps and he says, "Welcome to planet Earth." And he's yeah. super disappointed in humanity. Yep. That was probably his turnaround point too, knowing that that was really the end result for his group of people. Yeah, I mean, if you want to if you want to a modern day comparison, Mark Sherman in this movie is the mask wearer in the group. You know, (laughs) yeah, a believer in science. Yeah, he's the one really pleading for people to do the the thing that they know is right. They just need to convince themselves to do the right thing. That is right. We'll we'll find out that you know he does help in the end, which we're about there. I mean, we're there's the command center, and they're they're talking about they go back to you talking about uh, him giving her the baby. I gave you a baby tonight. <laughs> he will be a teacher. It's a boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty cool because he's like, it, he tells her it's part Scott, part him. Right. So yeah. yeah when the baby, when the boy grows up, he's going to be a teacher. But he says, uh, if you do not want this baby, let me know and I will stop it. And uh, she doesn't want to stop it. Now he didn't need to use one of his gray balls. <laughs> no, he used the other balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty powerful, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, he 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 got he got the lady who can't get pregnant pregnant. Now, so this whole like introduction of a, a child, this eventually leads to the the TV show spinoff that was created. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm glad you did knew you, about that. Yeah, yeah. Did you check that out at all? I didn't watch it, but uh, just to tie in our first episode, yeah, there was twenty one season, twenty two episodes of Starman, the television show, and uh, yeah, it's, it follows the father son. Like he comes back to Earth, and they're looking for Jenny. Yes, the actor who plays Starman in the show is none other than uh, what's his balls from Airplane, Robert Hayes. Robert Hayes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big i mean tv tv actor i think he, he was really huge in tv other, other than airplane and airplane 2 yeah man really bringing it back really tying our two episodes together here <laughs> robert hayes tying it together that's right 
I mean, I want to watch the show now because I, I I just need to know right uh, what their relationship was like. I think uh, I don't I don't know how well received it was, but I think it it's not horrible. One season uh, must not have been that only great. Only one season. Yeah, probably just didn't get enough viewership or something. Probably not. But it is Robert Hayes too. Robert Hayes, man, <laughs> got a drinking problem. Yeah, I mean, there's a little twist here. Um, How so? Because after they they you know make the baby and he tells her and he also shows her where he's from because she wants to know so she can tell their son where her her dad is from and he actually is like there he's like oh wait a minute that's not right, right. and then he takes a second <laughs> like there you know I thought that was pretty funny that was good yeah but turns out they hop off the train and they've gone three hundred miles too far into Las Vegas Nevada. Right. And this That's is a right. part of the story that doesn't make any sense logistically at all because her wallet is gone because it blew up or whatever the fuck. She has no wallet, <laughs> no ID. He obviously has no ID, no money. No, I mean, no ID is the big thing. Uh, but then he goes into the casino and touches the machines and wins $500,000 in like a minute. And then they just go buy a car. Like he buys a car. Right. And they just show him rolling off the lot with like a brand new uh fucking I don't know. Cadillac? I think it's a Cadillac. It's a caddy. Yeah. Yeah. Just rolls off the lot with a brand new Cadillac. No questions asked. It's like, how the fuck did two people buy a car with no ID? Right. Like like no driver's licenses, you know? All you need is five hundred thousand. Yeah, I just want to find. Yeah, maybe they paid him off. It doesn't matter. It's a movie. They just they really just gloss over that. So they end up uh, getting to the crater, or almost to the crater. They they take a little pit stop to get some more pie. Oh yeah, at that little uh, sh- shop. It's like these, they're selling fool's gold for twenty five cents. It's called the and- Indian Country Store. I have been there. I mean, I've been to the crater in Winslow myself, and oh, yeah. I'm kind of bummed. It's like now I got to go back. Starman in my my brain. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that whole area. I love that area of the country, and they they really yeah. highlight it in the movie. So the that scene is where they kind of get stuck. A bunch of cops pull up outside while they're eating their cherry cobbler. Busted. Is that your car outside, ma'am? <laughs> and then we get another visit from Sherman. And that's when we we learn that um, he's able to be convinced to uh, to lend a hand. Yeah, he's really anxious to ask questions. He gets a little intelligence from Starman. Right. Yeah. He he learns. Um, well, at, at least his perspective on the human race. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's only got like a minute to ask him a billion questions that he's always wanted to ask. I mean, the dude works for fucking SETI. He's got a lot of questions, and he's he's trying to like. Get down to brass tacks. Yeah, Starman basically just says, he's like, do you want to know what I find beautiful about you? You are at your very best when things are worst. And it's like, okay, that might, that's really nice, but uh, just bring it back to wearing masks. Definitely not fucking true on this planet, especially in this country. Uh, <laughs> things are pretty fucking bad and people are absolutely terrible. Uh, except right. Mark Sherman. Mark Sherman's He's the mask wearer of the group, like I said. Well, it's a very romantic thing to say. 
Yeah, it's a nice line. He's tying it into the love story. Yeah. Um, I like it. That, was, that was a good one, though. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he, so that's when he they, he gives him permission to leave, basically, and he tells the, the police there that they got the wrong guys. They're looking for an older guy. Yeah, and, and he gets a Fox. kiss on the lips. He gets a kiss on the lips from <laughs> both of them, which is a really funny scene. Right. Starman and Jenny both give Sherman kisses a kiss on the lips. The kiss goodbye. Yes. Because <laughs> Starman just does everything Jenny does. I don't know why Jenny's kissing him on the lips to begin with, but that's just to set up the joke, you know. Yep. And so yeah, George George flies in on his helicopter, and then uh, there's the the exchange between him and. Mark, we get we get a little smoke in the face. Mm-hmm. What did he say? I, uh, as much as I'd hate to stoop to symbolism, and then he yeah. blows smoke <laughs> right in Fox's face. And this this is all coming after George Fox told him to lose the cigars, and he's been trying to like emasculate Sherman this whole time, saying like we basically run your fucking life. You you're only here because like I say you can be here. Just fall in fucking line. Because they're not listening to Sherman this whole time, and then Sherman lets him go, and because he's on the, he's fed up with the military. He wants Starman to go home and not be harmed, and then he blows smoke in Fox's face, saying "Fuck you! I know what you're planning. You're an evil piece of shit, and right. you know the the good guys are gonna win this one. We are definitely mm-hmm. rooting for that side. This next part." Pretty much an homage to the Apocalypse Now scene <laughs> yeah. with the helicopters flying in. Yeah, like a dozen fucking army helicopters. Yeah, at least. I mean, I, I went back and watched that scene in Apocalypse Now. And the, in, the, in Apocalypse Now, they had like maybe six or seven helicopters. But in this yeah. one, I, I didn't count them all, but it was at least a dozen for sure. It was a lot. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. That's where, that's where your budget went. Well, and even the the music was a little similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this movie, you know, the, the music for that part is a lot more ominous. But um, the uh, that I mean, Apocalypse Now is a whole different story, right? But did you uh, did you notice the cameo in this scene? Oh boy, no, I don't think so. There's a scene oh. where George Fox is, you know, telling him like shoot warning shots, but don't don't hurt them. Right, and then one of the pilots registers that uh, that command. Do you know who that was? No, <laughs> I didn't either. I'm but... really think I'm really thinking who who is it? <laughs> it's John Carpenter. What? John Car- yeah, he's in the movie. He's he plays the pilot. Man, he he pulled a Hitchcock. Yeah. What? Yeah. I he... man, I. <laughs> Did not notice. I don't know if I've ever noticed. Yes, he says, I copy. Here we go. Yeah. Wow. I man, that just really have to go check it out. Over my head. That didn't go through my eyes. I don't think he was credited officially in the credits. I figured it out. In on IMDB it mentions that he is a helicopter pilot, uncredited. And so I, I went back into the movie and, <laughs> and found him. It's kind of cool. 
That's awesome. In my brain, I was probably looking for like 2021 John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the old I'm man. I'm like looking for a super old guy. Yeah. I'm like, uh, oh, oh, John Carpenter was younger in 1984. All right. Yeah. Long haired hippie. Awesome. He was young awesome once, dude. Yeah. Yep. Now all he does is play video games. Great music, by the way. Great music, by the yeah. way. I got his uh, his his Lost Themes records. I got Lost Themes three, which just came out uh, in the mail. Been waiting for it for weeks. Got it, bought it on vinyl. Oh, cool. but I've got the first two on vinyl. His Lost Themes records are fucking phenomenal. If you guys haven't listened to them, so good. And he's got a bunch. You know, you can get like his scores and stuff on vinyl and. They release them all, but his Lost Themes records are really good. I'll have to check that out. I haven't uh, so good. Haven't looked for him. Right on. I do love his soundtracks. Yeah, man. It's just a bunch of really killer, basically like uh, John Carpenter songs that could be in movies, any of his movies from the past, uh, but they're not. They're just, they're standalone albums, and they're super influential, man. He's an influential oh, yeah. musician too. For, for sure. Yeah, he's awesome. But yeah. highly recommend the Lost Themes records. Check them out. You heard it here first. So that scene they're going in is this, this is this is the end of the movie. You know that there's so they're firing. They're sh- shooting like missiles and high caliber guns. Warning shots only. Warning shots <laughs> only Fox said. Well, and then there's a moment where there's like this big explosion and you you think that they just got blown mm-hmm. up. And then the smoke clears, and yeah, why are you gonna a warning missile? <laughs> Stupid. Seems what a, a what much, a waste yeah. of money. You know how much that missile costs. That, that, that pilot's like that's you get fired for that. <laughs> they told him to use to fire warning shots. Maybe he only had missiles. <laughs> <laughs> then you just buzz them with your with the helicopter. You get a little, t- you, you get close. That's what you do if you only have missiles. And what were they, what were they really hoping to accomplish with the dozen plus helicopters anyway? It, it was like going they into war. Trying to round them up. They're trying to corral their ass. Yeah, it seems like a little excessive. Or, you know, stop them from, stop them. They were just trying to stop them from getting to their destination. Right. They definitely failed there. This is the moment where they they make it to the bottom of the crater, mainly because like they it's the scene is interrupted by the arrival of the mothership. Now, mm-hmm. did you hear anything about this mothership being a ripoff? Uh, there's a film that was released in it's either eighty two or eighty three called Wavelength. Have you seen that one? Who who's in it? Do you know? Oh, is it Bo Bridges? Say it's Bo Bridges. Bo Bridges again. <laughs> There's a Bo Bridges yeah. UFO movie that I used to watch when I was a kid, and I cannot figure out what the fuck it's called. And it's oh, really? been bumming me out for years. Like I can't even find it online. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was I was hoping it would be that, but no, I haven't seen Wavelength. Yeah, Wavelength. It was Robert Carradine, and Sherry Curry. And uh, Keenan Wynn actually had kind of like an, a cameo in it, who is this old school uh, Disney actor. Mm-hmm. Every Disney movie ever made, practically, the live action stuff. Mm. 
back in the like 60s 50s i think even do 50s 60s 70s anyway so him him and him and kurt russell have definitely worked together oh yeah multiple times and yeah back in the day <laughs> so anyway this uh the mothership in wavelength um which also is only shown at the end of the film was sci-fi nerds were saying like hey you just you stole that ufo from wavelength and it does it looks it's this giant mirrored orb that reflects the surface that it's over when i was reading about it the um the special effects team had never seen wavelength and so they just denied that they were trying to rip off anything and they came up with their own the biggest difference in in um Starman was that it has this uh, like ring of debris that circles the UFO, and that wasn't part of the wavelength UFO. Mm-hmm. So, little little controversy yeah, there for the sci-fi experts. I didn't know that. Crazy. I just thought the mothership, since it was a sphere, it just it resembled the balls he's been carrying around, and oh yeah, the, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, it's something that's yeah, ingrained into their into their technology, the sphere. But it's making it snow. It's a bunch of big flakes of snow falling down in the desert when the mothership arrives. I'm not sure what maybe you know, but there, in that scene too, there's like some smoke, and in the lights, mm-hmm. like the interaction that that smoke has with the lights. I don't know if there is like some mm-hmm. something special used to get that effect, but it's a really neat effect where you see it's almost like laser light in red, and then the smoke kind of just like wafting through the the light. Yeah, and this is the big kiss goodbye. And she wants to go, right? But she won't survive. She, she can't. Yeah, if he stays, he'll die. If she goes, she'll die. They have to separate. So sad. It is mm-hmm. so sad. Mm-hmm. I I did like how he, the very last shot was is focusing in on on Jenny's face, and you just basically see like you know her entire head, but her eyes just staring right at the camera, and the the camera mm-hmm. then tilts with her looking up, and then just fades to black. And you, like you see her her head is like backlit a little bit. So good. I love I love that last shot. Yeah, me too. And I thought about it the way that her neck kind of like snaps back and like goes like whatever. If they just would have like lifted her up for a split second, like you you can kind of take it as she's just watching them take off or maybe mm. they start pulling her up. I don't know. Oh. That'd yeah. be cool. I don't think they pull her up, but she's definitely given that motion with her head of like typicals or stereotypical kind of tractor beam, uh, pull a human off of the planet and their arms are draped down. They're just limp and their heads cocked back. She looks like she's almost trying to assume that position. Oh, it's she like, might, like she, being abducted she, kind of a thing. Yeah. She might be yeah. uh, getting taken out of there. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it it is a really sweet moment, you know, because they say, I love you. And then he says, but this is before he leaves, obviously. She's like, wants to go. And he says, you can't because you'll die. And she says, I love you. And then he says, tell the baby about me. Yeah. And she says, <laughs> I will. And then 
The last ball, Jeff. What does he do with it? He hands it over. He gives it to her and says, give this to the boy. He'll know what to do with it. He'll know what to do with it. Yep. Goodbye, Jenny Hayden. (laughs) (laughs) It's his last line. (laughs) (laughs) Well, any any other thoughts on uh, Starman? Nope. Not that I can think of. I just okay. I just love the movie, man. Yeah. I love it. Great movie. One of my favorites from Carpenter for sure. Yeah. This is not a typical Carpenter film for sure. Oh, like I said, I just learned totally different. I just learned it was a Carpenter film not that long ago, like two months ago, if that seriously had no idea. I did see this as a kid, you know, when it was released on video. Me too. Yeah. I mean, now when people if I ever get in a situation where I have to introduce people to john carpenter i mean you got to give them the classics of course but you then now you got to throw in Mm -hmm. like but you should watch starman too because uh perhaps underrated carpenter classic yes most definitely well do you um on a completely different note uh, have any other movies uh that that people should pick up and watch any other suggestions yeah watch uh, I don't feel at home in this world anymore on Netflix because I'm in it for a second. Oh, what's the title again? That's <laughs> uh, the only thing that came to mind. Uh, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. <laughs> it actually won the um, Grand Jury at Sundance. Nice. It was the first movie I pushed awesome. Dolly on, but uh, I'm in it. Awesome. I'm in it for a scene. Uh, I'm not, I don't have a line. I'm getting beat up on the sidewalk. I'm playing a bum. That's what they think of me, Jeff. <laughs> Nothing but a bum. Uh, right there, right outside the Sandy Hut. Oh, I remember you telling me about that that shoot. Yeah, it's actually that was a, while it's actually ago a really now, good huh? movie. It actually is a really good movie. Written and directed by Macon Blair. DP Larkin Seeple. Uh He did that fucking Childish Gambino video, This Is America, and some other movies hmm. after that. Uh, that Melanie lady from Two and a Half Men's in it. Elijah Wood. David Yao from Jesus Lizard. Wow. Good movie. Yeah, lots of names in there. I know. Heck yeah. It's uh actually a really good movie. It's on Netflix. It's a, I will I will I will check it out. It's a Netflix film. It's a Netflix original. They bought it, huh? Yeah. Nice. I do subscribe to Netflix. Watch it. It's actually it actually is a good movie. Would you like to uh to pitch your next oh, maybe by the time this comes out it might be the previous week episode, <clears throat> but what's coming up on Lost Rhetoric? Well, la- yesterday I dropped the new episode uh, about the money pit at Oak Island treasure hunting with Jesse Gee, who went to the Stan Winston School of fucking special effects or whatever, and does special effects for yeah. a living. But he was my guest, la- I guess, that when this show drops last week. Really good episode. But this week, my friend Grace is my guest. So by the time you're show airs my show will probably be out and we're doing an episode about uh jack parsons and uh all of his weirdness and uh you know probably get into some crowley shit and some thelema shit and uh yeah lost rhetoric wherever you listen to podcasts check it out sweet well thanks jason for being on once again yeah thanks jeff maybe maybe i'll let you come on again oh yeah man think about it i just i just ordered lady snowblood is that what it's called the samurai films. I just I just ordered the Criterion Collection DVDs 
and uh, they should be getting here like Wednesday. Lady Snowblood. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the complete Lady Snowblood. So uh, I, nice. I assume it's it, it was recommended because I'm a huge fan of Lone Wolf and Cub. Let's do that. Should we do it? <laughs> well, it depends on okay. how many movies there are. I still think we need to do all the Lone Wolf and Cubs one by one. That would be fun. That would be epic too. <laughs> That's a long series, but well worth it. It's a awesome the best movie series. The best. Wow, that was a long one. Are you still there? What do you think? Should Jason and I do all of the Lone Wolf and Cub series? Maybe Lady Snowblood? Let us know. Check out my website, filmchurch.org, and feel free to send me an email at podcast at filmchurch.org, or if you like old school, email me at filmchurch at aol.com for fun. If you have any suggestions, please a suggestion in my suggestion box on my website would be awesome. It's uh, totally anonymous. And don't forget to subscribe. It really helps. Yeah, You know what? Please leave a review, too, if you can. Uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, your favorite podcast service, whichever works for you. I don't mind. It would really... It would be nice. It would be nice to hear from somebody. So next week... I get a a little experimental and maybe a little mental (laughs) will probably be mansplaining uh, all by my lonesome as I was unable to book a guest. Yeah, I know. And what will I be mansplaining? The influential women in film in celebration of International Women's Day, March 8th. So until next time, Thanks for listening. Do you seriously expect me to tell the president that an alien has landed, assumed the identity of a dead house painter, and is presently out tooling around the countryside in a hopped-up 1977 Mustang? You're not from around here, are you?